Chapter 11 California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 A Desert Ride Mecca to Fig Tree John. A few miles to the north of Mecca, a canyon opens into the Cottonwood Mountains that is remarkable for the contour and the coloring of its walls. It is known as Painted Canyon. A view of it well repaid the discomfort of a ride on a July morning, with the temperature at 110 degrees in the shade. A broad, horizontal band of red on the face of the mud-colored foothills plainly marks the point of entrance. Footnote. It is not the canyon that opens directly into the red formation, but the next one to the westward that is most notable. End of footnote. These foothills never fail to rouse my curiosity by the complicated shapes into which the material has been wrought. The material is earth, not rock, and is mostly of a pale gray hue approaching white. Erosion, supplementing the work of some violent original upthrow, has produced a most intricate medley of forms. At a mile or two, the light and shade effects are so eccentric as to seem artificial. Creasing, pleating, braiding, dovetailing are carried to the point of confusion. Yet on this vast scale it has a look of orderliness that is unnatural, and under sunset light this whole foothill range for leagues becomes a checker of red and purple, a charm of color, a mystery of design. On entering the canyon, the sides are, at first, not high, and are built of whitish earth. But as one goes on, the walls increase in height and verticality and in strangeness of form, while the canyon narrows to a gorge and then a defile. Novel colors appear. Cliffs, mainly of dusky red, are banded and splashed with lavender, chocolate, bright ochre, purple, gray, ashy dark green, and brilliant lighter red. Clefts only a few feet in width wind away from the main canyon. Curious shapes are met. Gullies, cirques, domed recesses, tunnels, perpendicular walls of unbroken smoothness topped with turrets and spires and perilous balance. There has been wild work here in some heroic age of geologics. Enormous mud eruptions, I suppose, succeeded by cooling conditions almost equally violent, and these followed by ages of varied though slower play of elements. Even Kawea was impressed and stared about him like any tourist. The passageway became yet narrower, the cliffs more vast. I do not think 500 feet is an overestimate of their height in some places, and the nearness of the walls to the beholder doubles or trebles their towering effect. One feels as if he were at the bottom of a well. A feature that interested me was the formation in places of a sort of lacework, curiously fashioned of earth, which hung in perpendicular valences from projecting ledges where water had trickled over the cliff face. The work, one might fancy, of some race of gnomes or fairy cliff-dwellers who inhabited the crannies of the wall and wove this airy grill to screen their privacy. After some miles, I dismounted and sat down in the strip of shade at the foot of the cliff. The silence was profound. No breeze penetrated thus far, no rustle of wing, piping of insect, nor hint of the delicate footfall broke the trance-like stillness. 
the dead air and the pressure of heat in that confined space added to the feeling of absolute solitude only the swing of an eagle across the narrow ribbon of sky told of life motion the sentient in nature on the sand nearby lay the carcass of a raven then momentarily breaking the spell from some ledge far overhead came a shower of pearl-like notes the sweet unvarying phrase of the canyon wren plaintive beseeching like orpheus's farewell to eurydice at this season there was no water in the canyon though in winter a feeble trickle is sometimes forced to the surface by an outcropping ledge of granite my canteen supplied my own needs but coea seemed unhappy and must have longed to drink so i refrained from exploring farther than some four miles of the canyon which continued to wind on apparently into the heart of the mountain on the return i noticed a few clumps of the rare aster or cuttii still holding their large lavender blossoms the only flowers and almost the only plants that the place afforded halfway down the canyon a hot wind met us it had a fierce stinging quality that made the skin smart and it seemed as if it would wither the eyeballs through the lids the water in the canteen became so hot that it was only while in the act of drinking that thirst was allayed kawea hurried along without need of spur and when we reached camp drank until i feared the water resources of the valley would be endangered and made him stop i poured what remained in the canteen into my canvas wash basin and on using it several minutes afterwards found it uncomfortably hot its temperature by the thermometer was one hundred and eight degrees when a friend who had a date plantation near thermal an overmodest name at this season a few miles up the valley invited me to visit his place i was prompt to comply months of solitary travel lay ahead and i didn't miss any chance of society while i could get it my friend himself was absent but the jolly young canadian foreman and a delightful mexican family who worked on the place made my stay pleasant and profitable the owner is one of the pioneers of the date industry and an importer of the palms on a large scale from the african and asiatic date regions the plantation was a picture of thrift and perfect cultivation and the young algerians arabians and persians seemed as comfortable as though santa rosa mountain across the valley were ararat sinai or the atlas one of the neighboring canyons gave another example of the fantastic and natural carving the walls are in places wrought to almost cathedral look of fineness and with their whitish color take on at a little distance almost the look of old ivory deeply worn trails of bighorn mark the hillsides here and there and once the silence was broken by a far-off bleat that only augmented the sense of solitude it was a sultry half-cloudy day when i moved southward across the valley to the old indian village of toro there was little token of desert in the green fields of alfalfa willow-shaded reservoirs and flocks of water-loving blackbirds that i passed but along the mountainside ran the ancient sea-line reminding me that i was in one of neptune's cellarages pumped dry by the sun there used to be a little newspaper published monthly at thermal that bore the heading the coachella valley submarine published one hundred and twenty-two feet below sea-level 
a humorous subheading described this inoffensive sheet as the most low-down newspaper on earth i know of others to which such a character might be attributed seriously enough arrived at toro i sought an interview with the capitan he bore the unromantic name of joe pete but was a good-looking portly friendly fellow who willingly showed me a good spot for my camp in a grassy corner of his little farm there were evidences of thrift in his neat house of cement blocks and in flourishing rows of grapevines cantaloupes and so forth also in his wife busy with the blackberry patch two boys and a half a dozen dogs made it their business to interview me and i was put through a short but sharp examination what is your name where do you come from where do you go when where did you get your pony how much can he buck and what do you do you prospect when my turn came there was not much to be got beyond shy grins and much shuffling of dusty feet but i learned that one of the boys was joe pete's godson and that he lived with his godfather in preference to staying at his proper home close by which seemed to speak well for the big capitan there were heavy clouds and vivid lightning that evening to the north and i guess they were catching it up at dale and twenty-nine palms once or twice in most summers an electrical storm breaks over these mountains but the rain seldom reaches the open desert it may sometimes be seen falling but is likely to evaporate in mid-air and return unspent to the parent cloud joe pete who came over while i was breakfasting to present me with a melon promised two months of what he called little warm like this it was then about ninety-five degrees less than an hour after sunrise in the morning i went on to the next village martinez a short distance down the valley somewhere hereabouts there were to be seen until lately examples of the wells dug by the indians of olden days i got an intelligent young indian to pilot me to the sites of three of them but they were now shapeless pits filled with mesquite and other brush the water supply is now the commonplace one by pipe and bucket no longer per squaw marching picturesquely with oya through thickets of arrowweed and mesquite to draw from the pool at the foot of the earthen stairway returning with plentiful germs of typhoid fever i have inquired for these old wells in other parts of the desert where formerly there were large indian settlements but have failed to find one remaining in tolerable condition i am told that these indians the cahuillas are the only tribe known to have solved the water problem by digging wells at the foot of santa rosa mountain a short distance from martinez there is an interesting relic of aboriginal times that is fairly well preserved though it must be of very great age a number of years ago there appeared in a los angeles paper an account of the discovery of the remains of a prehistoric city in this locality the story had all the marks of a mare's nest but i fancy that this that i refer to may have been its foundation the object is hard to find being indistinguishable until one is on the very spot and even then it might be overlooked yet it is as unmistakably man's handiwork as the cliff dwellings when once the eye grasps it in a little recess or bay perhaps three hundred yards wide at the foot of the mountains one sees a curious arrangement of the stones that litter the slope they seem at first to be grouped in circular formation 
as if they marked the outlines of small round huts the circles are not complete however but are like horseshoes with the openings on the upper side the slope is covered with continuous lines of these horseshoes nearly touching one another the rows extending almost from side to side of the recess the diameter of the horseshoes is six or eight feet and there are several rows one above the other like terraces along the foot of the slope when one observes that these stone horseshoes are placed just at the level of the former sea their nature becomes plain they were simply fish traps whether the entire set was built when this was a tidal shore and the sundry rows were meant to serve for higher or lower tides or whether the traps date from more recent times when this was an inland and therefore tideless sea and the ranks were built downward in succession as the water line gradually lowered i must leave to heads more archaeological than mine when i spoke of the place to one of the martinez indians he knew at once what i meant and referred to the objects unhesitatingly as the old fish traps a short ride from martinez took me to alamo bonito another indian village taking its name from the trees that mark its location from miles away footnote in spanish alamo means cottonwood bonito means beautiful End of footnote. it is ruled by jake razon as capitan and to him i applied for permission to camp near the water and for cahuilla's rations of hay at first he was suspicious for which i didn't blame him especially as my military saddle and other traps gave a half official look to my coming i had broken in on a family watermelon party too but after talking me over while they finished the melon jake relented and again all was hunky-dory as a former host had phrased it he came over after supper for a chat but his anglo-indian spanish was too abstruse for me and was complicated by one or two original compound idioms that found place in every sentence for instance sometime any time and you see you bet i gathered however that some local authority was bent upon breaking up the few remaining tribal customs of these harmless people such as their periodical fiesta and the use of their indian language it seems odd that indian officials are so enthralled by the repressive idea which may be summed up as see what those confounded indians are doing and make them stop it i slept well with jake's scanty hay pile for mattress but was aware once or twice of thunder lightning and sprinklings of rain just before dawn there came a splitting crash right overhead i jumped up and found a partial shelter which only enabled me to soak piecemeal instead of going in for a whole-hearted sousing at once which would have been much more comfortable a mare and colt that had been my neighbors all night gradually nibbling my mattress away dashed wildly about at every flash and roar Kawea was not interested he had hay to attend to and munched on sloppy but happy the farthest outpost of civilization in this direction is the oasis ranch a flourishing spot where owing to plentiful water desert life is almost luxurious i had meant to camp there for one night but the cordial welcome i met from the caretakers and from some friendly people who owned adjoining land was too much for me 
though the oranges grapes and melons with the charms of a reservoir big enough for a swimming pool also had weight it would be my last taste of such pleasures for a pretty long spell and i willingly succumbed to a three days stay pasturage moreover was plentiful and the fig season at its prime at evening we all took to the water and for an hour the welkin rang with shoutings splashings and barkings when i retired cooled the sleeping point repose was enlivened by big overripe figs that dropped on me at intervals throughout the night my route now was for a few miles near the margin of the salton sea this body of water is well worth a paragraph and the more so perhaps for the reason that it will probably find no place on the maps of the next generation of schoolboys the central part of the colorado desert has long been known to be below sea level a fact indeed plainly stamped on the face of the country in the water line of the ancient beach the means by which neptune lost this corner of his domain can be stated in a few words in far distant times the point at which the colorado river debouched into the gulf of california was not as it is now at the head of the gulf the sea then reached farther northward to the limit shown by the old shoreline so that the river's mouth was some distance to the south of the sea's northern boundary in course of ages the great stream then no doubt engaged in the carving of that marvelous canyon that ranks perhaps first among the geographical wonders of the world built up with its silt a dam which in time extended completely across the gulf leaving the upper part cut off from the ocean this isolated part which was over two thousand square miles in area and by geologists is named lake kawea from the indian tribe that inhabited its western side receiving practically no supplies of water tended to disappear by evaporation from time to time however the river must have broken in with the result that the lake became brackish thus the shells that are a noticeable feature of all the below sea level area are of kinds native to fresh or brackish waters the shell remains of the original sea epoch are now found high above sea level betokening some great upheaval in remote times it is to the brackish period that the deposits of travertine calcium carbonate are due proof can be seen in marks of old lake beaches at various levels that there was a succession of complete or partial fillings and emptyings of the lake basin the inflow no doubt usually coming from the river but perhaps sometimes from the gulf from Indian tradition, it would seem that for a long time prior to recent years, the lake bed, as a rule, has been dry. Great deposits of salt occupied the deepest portion, and a few years ago were being worked on a large scale. In 1891, there occurred a relatively small inflow from the river, creating a shallow lake of some 200 square miles. But in 1905, through the weakness of levees and headgates of the canal system that was carrying the colorado river water on to the lands of the new imperial valley settlement came a greater flood which caused serious loss and threatened a wholesale disaster for over two years the water rose until it seemed as if it would entirely fill its old basin it was not until early in nineteen o seven that the engineer finally conquered the river 
I say finally, but after all that is a word man should never use for his little victories over physical nature. At that time the lake was over 400 square miles in area, with a depth of more than 80 feet, an imposing body of water. That is the so-called Salton Sea. Evaporation has somewhat reduced it, and in about 20 years, should there be no new inflow, it will probably have disappeared, perhaps forever. Today it is still a great expanse, which looked at, over its farthest extent, appears a veritable sea, with no horizon of land to mark its bounds. Near the western margin of this geologically romantic lake, my road now ran to the southward. The water, faintly blue and ideally calm, looked in the summer haze like a watercolor drawing, and the mountains beyond, the cottonwoods and the chuckawallas, might have been an insubstantial pageant instead of the uncompromising reality that I had lately experienced. The chocolate range, farther to the south, was a mere dream of air tints, quite phantasmic. On the nearer shore, a white and grisly rank of dead mesquite stood like skeletons. They had been killed by the flooding of the basin, and had but lately emerged as the water receded. Here and there, among the branches, were many nests of pelicans, which make this inland sea, swarming with fish of one or two coarse species, their home and breeding ground. The effect upon the mind was of a dead sea, with horror veiled under a Circean smile. Nor did the sight of the old beach line, with its hint of vanished ages, of countless generations long passed away, at all lessen the impression. The Indian patriarch of these parts is old Juan Razon, or as he is better known, Fig Tree John. In former times he lived, far from whites and other Indians, at a spot a few miles to the south. It is to be known by a few fig trees, and is marked on government maps as Fig Tree John Springs. When the Salton Sea submerged his little estate, he moved to another spot called Agua Dulce, on somewhat higher ground. I already had a slight acquaintance with him, and was pleased now to meet him as he was leading his horse to water. When I had surrendered the can of tobacco with which I had come prepared, he invited me to share a watermelon with him at his house. I hastened to agree to this excellent idea. The mellowest sandia was brought from his little patch and bisected with a rusty hatchet, and we sat in the shade of the ramada and chatted while the cooling hemispheres rapidly melted away. To my regret, Mrs. John was coy and would not join us, nor would a huge girl who gloomily watched the melon's effacement through peepholes in the brush partition. From a chummy, almost fraternal tone, John became impressive. An old satchel was produced and proved to contain archives that revealed my friend in his higher roles. First was a photograph, tenderly wrapped, of himself in cavalier, wearing a police uniform, the feature of which, apart from a certain roominess of fit, was its double rows of gleaming buttons. The severity of a stovepipe hat gave effect to an attitude of martial rigidity which he had thought proper on the occasion of being taken. A possible defect of top heaviness was offset by bare feet, which corrected any impression of overdress. The steed, appropriate for a desert chieftain, was a miniature donkey, whose dramatically pointed ears betokened a deep sense of responsibility. 
Next, an aged document was perilously unfolded and spread before me. In clerkly hand and formal phrase, it set forth that Cabazon, the last great chief of the Cahuillas, did thereby name and appoint Juanito, means Johnny or Little John, Razon to be Capitan of the Agua Dulce Tuba village, and to exercise authority in the name, place, instead of said chief Cabazon, and called upon his people to render respect and obedience to said Johnny and all said Johnny's lawful commands, etc., etc., given under my hand this so-and-so, and signed with a cross in presence of a witness. Then came some ragged maps, apparently rough drafts of surveyors. These, he held, made him owner of all the territory shown, running from the last low ridge of the Santa Rosas, the ridge was named Hiawat on the map, evidently an Indian word, though John could not translate it into Spanish, as far as Conejo Prieto, or Black Rabbit Peak. No wonder he eyed me closely while these valuable papers were in my grasp. Before I left, I bought of him a macate, or rope of plated horsehair, of his own making. The price to others would have been four dollars, he said, but on grounds of friendship I should have it for half the sum. This statement warned me that the article was not worth the price he asked for it, but I was glad to carry away this souvenir of the dusky lord of Conejo Prieto. There is a legend, the truth of which I may some day put to the proof, that the rattlesnake will not cross a rope of this sort. Many cowboys and others are convinced that this is a fact, and John also affirmed it stoutly. I have sometimes, in specially stink-infested districts, laid the rope around the place where I spread my blankets, and can assert that I have never been bitten. This may not be thought convincing, but I doubt if any cowboy has better evidence to offer. There is, however, a reasonable theoretical basis for the belief. Anyone who has handled a hair rope knows that it is about as uncomfortable an article to the touch as a thistle. The arrangement of the belly scales of the rattlesnake is such that, in the act of crawling, the prickly hairs would certainly prove annoying, perhaps enough so as to cause the snake to change his course. Footnote. I have recently made the experiment with a sidewinder, which is a small species of rattlesnake. It passed over my hair rope three times without any token of discomfort. Each time, however, the snake was moving backwards. It is possible that in forward motion the effect might be different. In footnote. When I suggested a picture, it was made plain to me that the great do not receive but confer a favor in being photographed. John demanded a round sum, which in this case seemed not to be modified on the score of friendship. When that was arranged, he took the position and expression of one who bears intense pain with determination. Then the great girl would be taken with her pet goat. No need for any formula of look pleasant, please, with smiling Juana. When I asked how I should address her in sending copies of the picture, she sedately gave her name as Mrs. So-and-so, Post Office Box So-and-so, at Mecca, thoroughly up in the ways of the world. No doubt her children will be little Bills and Bobs, Sadies and Susies, 
with chewing gum and all modern improvements. An hour's easy ride brought me to my camping place for the night at Fig Tree John Springs, no longer obliterated by the flood. The water is good, though tepid, and a few small palms and a cottonwood or two make the spot attractive. The margin of the lake is now a half a mile away. I walked over to it and found an uninviting beach of slimy mud, the surface baked by the sun into large curving flakes like potsherds. A few dead trees were all that broke the melancholy expanse, if I accept the decaying bodies of fish that added no charm to the landscape or the breeze. From the many coyote tracks, it seemed that this sort of diet is much to the taste of that broad-minded animal. Far out, pelicans and groups of three or four were fishing for supper, one of them now and then launching itself with mighty splash upon a school of prey. The sunset color was unusually fine, though of extreme delicacy. One might suppose that desert conditions would work for crudity and staring distinctness in form of color. The reverse is the fact. The most ethereal tones in nature are those of desert landscapes. The mirage itself is hardly more elusive than the reality of these plains and mountains, faint, vague, mystical. And when the light comes level, as at evening or early morning, there is a quality in the scene that makes it ineffable, almost subjective. I slept beneath the palms. Overhead the stars played hide-and-seek as a gentle wind moved the leaves and brought low sounds from the lake, where tiny ripples plashed on the beach. Once a deeper sound came, as if by subterranean waves, to my ears. A heavy train was rumbling down the valley to Yuma. I sat up and watched the speck of light from the engine ten miles away across the water, and fancied I heard the ghost of a whistle as it neared the Sultan siding. There was no doubt in the case, however, when the coyotes began to sing grace over their fish bones. Such a hullabaloo came from the shore, as one would think must signify some vast immediacable woe. But no, that is the coyote's way of enjoying himself. As a rule, I enjoy it too, but now I wanted to sleep, so fired my revolver to see what the effect would be. There were ten seconds of sweetest silence. Then the hubbub was redoubled and mounted to a crisis. Well, I would have it a smoking concert at least, so lighted my pipe and talked to Kawea until the performers grew tired and took their way homeward, their farewells coming and touching diminuendo from some distant canyon. End of chapter 11